You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. While you're turning in your Bible to Psalm 73, just a a few housekeeping things. This morning is family worship. It's the last Sunday of the month, so our kindergartners, nope, our four-year-olds through third graders are with us this morning. So if you're a family and you have one of those children, we are glad that you're here. If you're a child and you're not normally in here with us, we are excited about you being in worship with us this morning. And if you didn't pick up one of the, the kids' packets in the back on your way in at the communion table, you're welcome to do that. There's some packets there, crayons. Uh, feel, feel free to take advantage of those things. Second, uh, this is also the end of our quarter, and so we have a partners meeting um, a- after the service is over. And so if you're a partner at South Point or you're already in the partnership process, uh, we would love for you to just drive down to our Locust Grove congregation at the end of our service this morning. We're going to have a meal together and just hear about what the Lord is doing in and among us. So that's going to be at the end of the service. So if you're new with us today and you see a whole bunch of people just leaving, that's not actually normal. People do like to hang around here and talk to each other. But today, uh, there may be a few more people exiting quickly. So that, that's the only reason. Other than, I mean, it could be me in just a moment. But uh, we'll just assume that it is the partner meeting and we'll go with that, Okay. Um, so those are the housekeeping things that I had for you this morning. But Psalm 73, just a few comments before we dive into the text. As I was preparing for this message, the thing that kept coming to me was that the phrase or the concept of deconstruction. Deconstruction seems to be the popular buzzword in evangelical cir- uh, circles nowadays, especially for those who have been Christians or professing Christians for much of their life. We're hearing about it all the time. You may have heard that word yourself. Anybody familiar with that phrase? Yeah, a few of you have heard it. You may see it on Instagram or TikTok, okay? People are, people are just explaining their deconstructive uh, or deconstruction narrative at the moment. But YouTubers, Rhett and Link, they spoke about it last year and their own process away from Christianity. Josh Harris, the guy who wrote the book back in the 90s, I believe, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, shared his deconstruction narrative not too long ago. Derek Webb from the popular group, again, in the 90s, Cademan's Call. On and on we could go listing the names of celebrity Christians who kissed Christianity goodbye after they deconstructed. Now, deconstruction, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, is, as one writer put it, the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs that you grew up with. So, For the professing Christian, it is someone who has been taught a a set of beliefs under the Bible for much of their life, and then they hit a point where they say, I am now going to dissect everything and, uh, that, I, that I grew up believing. Perhaps you have stories that hit closer to home, though, like me. Not just Christian celebrities, but also people that you know, maybe members of your own family, aunts, uncles, parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters, parents in the room. Maybe, maybe your own children have gone through such a story, but perhaps you're sitting here today, 
I don't want to leave that off the table. You're sitting here today, and you would say, if pressed. You know what, Chris? That's actually something that I'm going through as well. I was taught a, uh, a system of beliefs as I was being raised, and now I'm just having a difficult time believing all of them, and so I'm going through my own deconstruction process. I could show you person after person, still friends on Facebook, that I went to Bible college with who, after graduating, have now gone through the same process. One Facebook friend just announced last month that he had deconstructed from the faith. Man, I, I never would have expected it. He was the guy that was leading out in Christian ministry at my Bible college. He, he was a guy that was out in front of everyone, and yet he has proclaimed to have walked away from the faith that he once held. Now, before you start to think that deconstruction is a recent phenomenon because that word or concept is relatively new, or even that deconstruction is a final thing, I don't want you to think in that. I don't want you thinking that either. Before you think either of those things, I want us to spend some time in Psalm 73 this morning because in it, the writer, who is Asaph, a Levite who is a worship leader among the people of God, the Israelites, he gets extremely personal here in Psalm 73 about his own doubts. He gets extremely personal. Like this is what is going on in my very soul. Doubts that maybe you have right now about the Christian faith. Or maybe doubts that you have had about the faith. And I don't want to put modern words or modern concepts into his mouth, but it appears to be Asaph's journey, that is Psalm 73, from deconstruction back to faith. That's what's going on here in Psalm 73. And so if you're there with me in, in the scripture, would you stand with me as we honor God's word? And I'll, I'll read it aloud. Psalm 73, again, the writer Asaph says this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went in to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What I love about this particular psalm is that the author, Asaph, again, is writing after he has gone through a difficult process before the Lord. And he has come through it on the other side with a strengthened faith. And he's laying it all out for us to hear and receive his journey. It's meant to be read. It's meant to be processed, to be meditated over, to be dissected. Asaph wants others, us as the modern readers, to benefit from the process that he has gone through in his own faith to help process between what we know to be true and how it actually plays out in our lives. As he writes, we see a transition point in Asaph's perspective. So if you're taking notes, there is a transition at the end of verse 16. So verses 1 through 16, we see that Asaph is just looking around at all the wicked people around him. This is the wicked, this is how they live, this is how they operate. And then in verses 17 through 28, Asaph has a perspective shift and he starts to look at God. He's not looking at everything else, he's not looking at the world, he's not looking at the ways of the wicked, and he is seeing God for who he is, how he works, and how he operates in Asaph's life. This psalm begs us to ask the question, where am I looking? And so if you find yourself here this morning hearing that question, I want you to ask it of yourself before the Lord as well. Where am I looking? What is it that I am looking for? Where is it that I go to receive satisfaction? What is it that I am looking to for value in this life? Where is it that I find purpose and identity? Again, the question that I want us all to leave here having answered is where am I looking? And I want us to see just a major thing in the text this morning is this. If I look to God, he will give me the proper perspective on life and death. If I look to God, he will give me the proper perspective on life and death. And so we, we see first a look at the wicked. We'll see beginning in verse 3 that Asaph, again, looks at the wicked, but some context is necessary. He, he writes there in verse 1. Look there in the text with me. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart, one commentator said, the psalm is not doubting, of, then is not the doubting of someone who's opposed to God or someone trying to prove God isn't good. No, this is the doubting of someone who believes God is good. At the same time, the psalmist is honest about his struggles. I believe that God is good. He says it, that God is good to the children of Israel, but he doubts that it is happening in his life, and he is just putting it out there. This is what's going on inside of my soul. This is what's going on within me. Asaph rightly sees that God is good to his covenant children, and he is. 
But verse 2 makes us wonder if he believes that he's one of them. Look there again. But as for me, verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So Asaph knows that God is good to his children, but he doesn't know if he's one of them because of what is going on in the very depths of his soul. I know this truth. I know that God is good to his children, but then when I think about all the questions and doubts that are going on within me, when I look at the way that the wicked live, I have to wonder, is that same God good to me? So Asaph knows it, but he's unsure because of what is happening. I think Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, would have thought the same thing that night when he saw Jesus out on the water in Matthew chapter 14, right? Because when he sees Jesus out there in the water, he has this tremendous faith, faith enough to step out of the boat, and then he begins to walk on the water toward Jesus. He was doing it. He was living out his faith, believing that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. His experience while he was walking on top of the water was exactly in line with what he believed. And then, we don't know exactly how long he walked on the water, but he began to let, don't miss this, outside forces dictate what he knew to be true. And so the text says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And then he began to sink. Asaph says the same thing or a similar thing. My feet had almost stumbled. I almost sank. And then he tells us what those outside forces were that he allowed to dictate what he knew to be true. Verse 3. Look there in the Bible with me. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, we saw several weeks ago in Psalm chapter 1, Pastor Jeff preached on that text, that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will, anybody remember? Perish. Don't miss that. That the righteous will prosper, Psalm 1, and the wicked will perish. But when Asaph in Psalm 73 says, when I look around at the world, I only see the wicked, per- the only see the wicked prospering. So what's the deal? Psalm 1 says one thing, and then my experience tells me that another thing is true. And he, as he looks at the wicked, Asaph shows us two things. If you're taking notes, I want you to write these things down because they give us a picture into our internal world, knowing that if we are experiencing either one of these things or both of these things, it could be a clue into the state of our hearts. The first is this. First, we grow envious of how others live. You want to know, how do I know if I am fixing my gaze and my eyes on the wicked around me? How do I know which perspective I find myself in? The first clue would be, are you growing envious of how others live around you? In verse 4, we see envy in that the wicked still die peacefully, and they have no pangs until death. In verses four and five, we see that their bodies are in great shape according to the culture. They say that they are fat and sleek. I'm like, man, I wish that I still lived in that culture, right? (laughs) But nevertheless, when he looks around at the wicked, he sees, man, they have the bodies that they want. 
They're not getting sick even until death. They're living in a different way than I'm living. Verses 6, 9, and 11 show us that nothing is happening to them as they grow in pride. So much so that they wear their pride as a necklace. They're, they're proud. They're loving their life. They aren't hiding it. The wicked are setting their mouths against the heavens, the text says. They're cursing God, and they are not worried about it in the least. This is how they live. And Asaph is looking around, and he's saying, man, my life is so much different than that. I'm envious of how they're living. They, they seem to be free in a way that I'm not. Verse 12 tells us that they're always at ease. Their lives seem to be pain-free. All the while, they're growing in wealth. Asaph is looking around at the wicked and see God doing nothing to them. They don't seem to be punished for the way that they live. They seem to have everything that they want. They're wearing pride as a necklace around their necks. They have it all. How is this fair? Asaph has to wonder. And he shows us how we grow envious of how others live when we're looking to the wicked. And also, second, we grow dissatisfied with how we live ourselves. So how do I know that I'm looking around at the wicked around me instead of looking to the Lord himself? I, I might either be growing envious of how others, the wicked, live around me, or I could be growing very dissatisfied with my own life. Verse 13, Asaph says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now, if envy toward other people doesn't hit you, surely this one does. Because when we look to the wicked, here are some thoughts that we begin to have. I don't know if you've had those before. The ones that I'm about to tell you, I may or may not have had them myself. Those thoughts might be like this. Man, if I wasn't giving a certain percentage of my income to my local church, I could drive the type of truck that my neighbor has. If I weren't a Christian... I wouldn't have to feel guilty about seeking sexual fulfillment outside of the bounds of marriage. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, really, God doesn't seem to be giving the, the, the wicked the same type of life as me. He actually seems to be giving them a better life. They can do whatever they want, and they don't have any consequences for it. We think like the vineyard workers in Matthew chapter 20. You may remember that parable where there were some workers that were hired at the beginning of the day to do a particular job for, for a particular wage, and they worked their tails off all day. And at various points, other workers were hired. Even so, towards the end of the day, another group of workers were hired, and then they all went to get their wage. Now, those workers that were hired at the beginning of the day, they expected they, they would either be getting a different wage or at least a higher wage than those had been given at the end of the day, but they were given the same thing. And they thought to themselves, how in the world is this fair? That's what Asaph is saying. That's what's going on in the depths of his heart. When I look around, this doesn't look to be right. Why in the world is God treating the wicked in this way? And my life is so very difficult. We start to think, man, some people in our church, they don't serve at all on Sunday mornings. 
And you know what? When I just confirmed that service schedule on Planning Center a week ago, my name was in kids' ministry two times. And my name was on barista and door holder the other two. You start looking around at the people in your church and you say, my life is different than theirs. Why do we think like that? We think like that because our perspective is on the wrong thing. It may be, as Asaph says, because our perspective is that on the wicked, not on the Lord himself. If our, if our perspective is on the wicked, we may start to grow dissatisfied with how we live. We start to ask the question, is the Christian life worth it? When I count the cost, is it worth it? Why do I have to give up so much of my time for the sake of others in this life? If I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't have to have people in my home all the time, unless I really wanted them there. I wouldn't have to schedule a time for DNA every week or every other week. I wouldn't have to go to life group. I wouldn't have to participate with all these other people all the time. I could sleep in on Sunday mornings. That's what the wicked are doing. They get to sleep on Sundays. They get to have a whole extra day. And we begin to start thinking about this way and and in this same line of thought when we have our eyes fixed on the wicked instead of the Lord. On top of all this, Asaph says he kept this to himself. If he would have spoken this about all of this wisely before processing it in a particular way, it would have been harmful to his faith community. So before we move on to Asaph's perspective change, it's important that we see this. Something common with modern faith deconstruction stories is a verbal processing of everything that is going on in the internal self at all times. So here's what that looks like. You know what? I begin to have doubts just like Asaph has. How am I going to deal with those doubts? I'm going to take it to Instagram Live. And I'm going I'm to begin to just tell you everything that I've been processing, everything that I've been thinking. And then all of your friends on Instagram Live begin to say, man, I've been having those same thoughts. Maybe we should explore that together. And then you begin to see other people on Instagram Live because of algorithms that are having the same exact questions. And then you go on a, uh, just a journey of, uh, into oblivion, into a mess because of something that you begin to explore out in the public that was not ready to be out there. I'm just going to do it on Instagram Live. The problem with that is twofold. One, you'll be affirmed by others, again, because of algorithms, by your own perspective. And two, you will harm those whose theological foundations are not yet fully formed. And so, although it was difficult, Asaph rightly withheld from telling the assembly what he was going through. And I can hear the question as I say that right now. So here's what you're saying, Pastor Chris. If I'm struggling with my faith, I'm not supposed to go and tell anyone? That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Asaph is saying. It is very good to have the ear of trusted partners in our church. It is very good to be in right relationship, good relationship, good fellowship with the pastors of your church. That is right and good. It is good to inform them of what's going on in your heart 
What's going on in my soul? I want to be honest about the questions and doubts that I'm having. The danger, though, is communicating it to the whole before you have all the facts. Before you've taken any part of the journey, most importantly, Asaph, as his perspective shifts, tells us that it is best to take your questions to a particular person. It's best to take all of your doubts, to take all of your sins before the Lord. Don't miss that. And so if you're here this morning and you would say, I I actually am on that deconstruction journey, there are people here that want to hear about it. There are people here that want to journey with you. Myself, as one of your pastors, would love the opportunity to walk with you. But Asaph gives it to us first, that the first person that you should go to is the Lord. Go to the Lord, because that's been the issue. The issue has been where he's looking. He hasn't been looking in the right places. He's been looking at the wicked. I think about the Pharisees. They were constantly looking for ways to see that Jesus messed up. They were looking to disprove him and to show his followers that they were being deceived. In fact, they they kept looking for Jesus in particular to mess up on the Sabbath, to work on the Sabbath day. But they never had any attention to look to the Lord of the Sabbath. We have to ask ourselves again, where am I looking If you want to know why you're so envious of the way everyone else lives, you want to know why you're so dissatisfied with how you're living yourself, increasing your quality of life won't make it better. I can assure you that. The problem is with where you are looking. And so in verse 16, we get this confession from Asaph. He said, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me just a wearisome task. I started trying to to put all the pieces of my doubts and questions together, and it was absolutely exhausting. James Mays says it like this, reason cannot unravel experience to supply the ground of faith. I think sometimes that we are trying to make it all make sense on our own terms. I have this doubt, I have this question, and so I'm going to try to put it all together so that it makes sense as to how I understand life and how I perceive life to go and to be. Forgetting that there is this supernatural element to all of life, this otherworldly element that there is a God who's not like us in so many ways, that he's sovereign, that he created everything out of nothing, and that we can't begin to dissect the things that have happened to us and are happening all around us, thinking that that is going to lead us to faith without actually looking and submitting ourselves to the creator first. Do you hear that? That is where Asaph got it wrong. He was looking at everyone around him thinking, if I put all these pieces together, I'm going to assemble a good faith. But he decided not to look to the one who gives us faith. That's the Lord. For Asaph, he was done with this thinking, but where was he going to look? Where was he going to turn? Where am I to look and turn in times of question and doubt? There is this beautiful transition, though in verse 17, that we must not miss. It was exhausting. He said, I was wearied of putting it all together until verse 17. There is this phrase, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Christian, 
in your doubting, in your envy, are you seeking out the Lord? When you look at the people around you, when you, when you find yourself on Instagram and TikTok and you leave that session less than when you started it, when you think to yourself, man, I wish that my life was like that of other people, the question that you must ask yourself is, am I seeking the Lord? The psalmist says his perspective completely changed when he went into the sanctuary of God, when he sought out the presence of God. And so as that perspective changed, it was then Asaph says at the end of verse 17, I discerned their end. Two things happen when Asaph goes into the sanctuary of God. The first is this, that his envy for the life of the wicked, it begins to wane. As I shift my perspective, as I find ourselves, as we find ourselves seeking out the presence of the Lord through Christ Jesus, we find that we stop thinking about everybody else. We are, are not as envious as we once were of how the wicked live, but we actually find that our envy for the life of the wicked begins to wane. Remember when Asaph's eyes were focused on the wicked? All he could see was their success. All he could see was their health and prosperity. But now that his eyes are fixed on God, he sees the success of the wicked is only temporary. It won't last more than a blip on the timetable of eternity. That if they do not repent, verse 18, they will fall to their own ruin. Verse 19, they will be destroyed in a moment on that final day. Verse 20, that God's favor is actually not on the wicked. As Asaph's perspective is shift, he sees that this is taking place. And through this, Asaph realizes he couldn't see these things because of verse 21. He was bitter. Verse 22, he was just plain old ignorant. He didn't want to see God for who he really was. As he meets God in the sanctuary, his envy for the life of the wicked wanes. And second, his gratefulness towards God for his own life grows. That's what's going to happen when we meet God in the sanctuary through his son, Christ Jesus. We will find that our gratefulness toward God for my own life begins to grow. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you, Asaph says. You hold my right hand. Wait a minute. Asaph now sees something different. Psalm 1 is absolutely true, that the one who fears the Lord is blessed. God is always keeping me. He never lets his children go. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. He begins to think like the disciples here when in John chapter 6, after a long day of ministry, many of Jesus' peripheral followers begin to just walk away. They, they begin to turn their back and the text says they no longer walked with Jesus. And so when Jesus perceives this, he actually turns to his 12 disciples and he says, do you want to go away from me as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life and we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Asaph has finally 
coming into the sanctuary, come to the end of himself. He was tired of looking around at how all of the wicked lived their lives, and he met God in the sanctuary. He came into the presence of the living God, and maybe he still didn't have all the answers. Maybe not every one of his doubts were answered. Maybe he didn't know every single thing about this faith, but he met God in his sanctuary. And I don't know if you will ever have every question answered in this life. In fact, I don't think that we will. I don't think that we're supposed to. But he knew, Asaph did, that he was grateful to God for keeping him. And so he lets out this raw prayer of faith, beginning in verse 25. Many of you are familiar with it. He begins to say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and my heart of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Isn't this what happens when the people of God gather, gather every single Sunday in corporate worship, which is what we're doing right now, that it is a reorientation from the week that we've had to the week that is to come. A corporate turning from having our, our eyes fixed on the wicked to fixating our eyes onto Christ Jesus who is worthy of our gaze to having our eyes taken off from all of these other things and having them transformed into looking at the Lord and his glory to King Jesus and his cross where he took on the wrath of the Father that was rightfully being stored up for us, for my sin and any who would trust in him by faith. That is what we're doing as the people of God as we gather corporately on Sundays. Don't miss this final verse, verse 28. But for me, it is good to meet near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. You see, Asaph begins his thinking in verse 1 with the goodness of God as defined by his own liking and his own circumstances. You see, I know that God is good to his children, He's certainly good to them, but when I look according to my experiences and circumstances, and as I look at the wicked, I am certain that God's goodness is not upon me. But as Asaph meets with the Lord in his sanctuary, he comes to find out that God is actually good to him. That's good news. If God was good to me, we sometimes begin to think, I wouldn't have to live in pain. I wouldn't have to suffer. If God was good to me, man, I wouldn't have to try so hard before the Lord to remain pure. I could enjoy all the sensual pleasures that this world has to offer. If God was good to me, I could live a long life with no cares or concerns for morality. But again, as Asaph meets God in the sanctuary and his perspective is changed, his view on the goodness of God changes as well. You see, it's as one commentator said, God is good to the pure in heart precisely in being their God. 
He doesn't have to look at everyone else and everything else and every one of his circumstances and experiences so that he finds out that God is good. No, he begins to fix his eyes on the Lord, creator, sovereign one, and he realizes that God is good because God is good. Asaph begins his journey towards deconstruction. Not questioning the goodness of God in general, but the goodness of God towards him and ends with knowing that God is good in being his God. I don't know where you are in your faith journey this morning, whether you are deconstructing, reconstructing, or at the end of our sermon this morning still have no idea what those terms or concepts are, and that is perfectly fine. But I do know for certain, as one writer put it, your story can end in settled hope and newfound joy. You may not leave here this morning with having every one of your faith questions answered. You may not have every one of your doubts confirmed or deconfirmed. I don't, I don't think that you will, but I can assure you in meeting the Lord in his sanctuary through his son, Christ Jesus, your story can end in settled hope and newfound joy. The question that you must ask yourself and find the answer to today is where am I looking? Where am I looking? I recently was out walking with a friend in his neighborhood and I had my kids in a, in a stroller, and he had his son in the stroller, and we're just walking like two dads, loving life. And we're pushing our kids, talking about the things that were going on, and my five-year-old decided that she wanted off of her little jump seat and that she was going to push her one-year-old brother. And I said, you know what? There's nobody really coming in this subdivision. It's kind of quiet. There's a, a huge road and sure, why not? Go ahead and go ahead and push your brother. So she begins to, to push and she can't, she can't see over uh, where the, the stroller is. And so she's, she's just pushing along and we're hitting the curb. And I'm like, no, hang on, hang on. You know, recorrect. Your brother's going to fall out of the, of the stroller. This is getting kind of messy. But she was just having a good old time and we had no cares in the world. So she just kept pushing. And I thought to myself, it wasn't as though she had this desire, I don't think she did, to be malicious towards her brother in that moment. It wasn't as though she was trying to hit every, every curb and go zigzag all the way down this neighborhood road. That, that wasn't what the problem was. The problem was that she was looking in the wrong place. You see, if you always have your eyes fixed down below, you can't possibly see what is in front of you. And you have no way to be able to keep on the straight path. You have no way to see what is actually in front of you. Brothers and sisters, Asaph has written Psalm 73 inspired and preserved by the Holy Spirit of God so that you would know where to look, so that you wouldn't have to just keep your eyes fixed on all of the other things, your experiences, your circumstances, the wicked in this world, so that you would be tossed to and fro. 
but we know that we can meet God in his sanctuary through Christ Jesus who has made a way for us to be reconciled by faith and have a relationship with him and so we know exactly where to look. That's the encouragement in Psalm 73, that you would take your eyes, you would take the fixation on these worldly things and that you would be able to be lifted up to see the Lord in a sanctuary. If I look to God, he will give me the proper perspective on life and death. As we close this morning, I want you to consider exactly where the living God is calling you to look. Hebrews 12.2 says this, we should look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 